at some time in your life has someone ever made you so angry so upset that you considered some form of retribution some form of revenge of course you have you wouldn't be human unless you did and that is why we are here hi I'm Linda Blair welcoming you to how to get revenge during this program you are going to become quite literally an expert in the field of revenge let's face it revenge can be sweet especially when it's against someone who really deserves it seasons I've talked about the various different types of revenge in movies, ranging from prostitutes getting payback to vengeful spirits returning from the dead to kick some serious ass. But in all that time, we've never really talked about why. Why do we all love the thought of revenge so much? What is it about these stories of retribution that get movie-going butts into theater seats time and time again? Today in the series finale of Sums of Film History, we're going to find out. So join us one last time as we take our final vengeance. of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from murderous gays, to evil Santas, to horny nuns. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slate. Hi, Tom. Here we are. I know. Last, Last episode. episode. Holy shit. I can't believe that we had done five seasons of this. Yeah. It's 61 episodes of this. <laughs> I think I think we need to say it. It's 60 episodes. Just okay, one is a enough. two-parter. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. 60 episodes. I know. It's crazy. It's been, honestly, one of the crowning achievements of my life. I've really yeah, loved doing it. I feel like it's been such a great project. But, you know, things have to come to an end sometime. Yeah. Another well, piece I want to put on that is just how many people have given us feedback and been, like, really positive, too. Yep. Because we fuck things up. I fuck things up all the time. But everyone's been really cool about either correcting it or adding some suggestions. There's been no, no dick comments. No yeah. dick comments whatsoever, which I was expecting because it's the internet. There's dick comments everywhere. Yeah. And everyone's been really People fucking cool. Yeah. So just, you guys listening really to us has been awesome. So. so we really appreciate it. Yeah. But tying it back into the end here and to this episode, it works great for me because I'm finally putting revenge to rest. Yeah. You know, that's been like one of the things that I, I've checked my tick mark on every season is, oh, I got to figure out what I'm going to do for my revenge episode this season. It just became a thing, yeah. much like your biographies became a thing when you talked about different filmmakers. Yeah, absolutely. But as a final episode of season five and wrapping up our initial five season run i'm glad i get to do it with a revenge episode and especially with the topic that i'm talking about because i'm looking a little inward you know we love these revenge movies and there's so fucking many of them that i had to do four separate episodes just to scratch the surface but why the fuck do we love revenge so much yeah so i'm hoping i cracked that code a little bit with this episode so uh, we'll see but anyway let's get going let's get started with this episode i'm ready so, as I mentioned with my other episodes on this topic, I had Hooker Vengeance, which was in Season 1, Vigilante Veterans, which is Season 2, Rape Revenge in Season 3, and then Revenge from the Grave in Season 4. And like I said, I kind of went into detail the movies that existed and the history of those topics, but digging into why we enjoy those movies is where I really want to get to the meat of today. Before I do, I want to take a look back in the past and look and see what kind of revenge-specific entertainment existed back in the day sure. in history. And I think probably the place to start is in Greek tragedies. 
Mm -hmm. Those stories have a lot of revenge in them, but it's looked at a little bit differently. For instance, and I got some examples, Medea is a Greek tragedy, not Medea. Oh, I was like, oh, I've seen that. Not Medea. Yeah, she went to jail. Yeah. Halloween. Medea spit on your grave. Yeah. <laughs> Good God. I want to see that and not want to see that. I want to see it. <laughs> Fair enough. So Medea is an ancient Greek tragedy written by Euripides. And it's based on... And Tyler Perry. And Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry's Medea's Greek tragedy. And it was first produced in 431 BC. The plot centers around the actions of Medea, a former princess of the barbarian kingdom. She's wife to Jason. She finds her position in the Greek world threatened as Jason leaves her for a Greek princess in Corinth, where the fuck that is. Medea takes vengeance on Jason by murdering Jason's new wife, as well as her own fucking kids. Which is fucked up. Savage. After which she escapes to Athens to start a new life. Now that's fucked up. She killed her husband, but then killed her own kids. And that's kind of like how these Greek tragedies went. Like, the revenge was not something you were supposed to sympathize with. As a matter of fact, when this play is performed, there's a Greek chorus that is sort of like the audience stand-in. Mm -hmm. They're shocked when they find out that she killed her children. Like, in the play, they're like, oh, shit, that's fucked up. You know, they lament the fact that she did this. So you're not supposed to sympathize with her right, about right. it. But the reason Medea killed her own kids is to prove to Jason that it's his fault. He was willing to give up his kids, so she's going to kill them to say, this is the life you gave up. Go fuck yourself, essentially. So the mindset of the whole Greek tragedy thing is that, you know, revenge is not a human endeavor. Mm -hmm. You know, the gods are the ones that judge the fate of humans, right? Okay. So they're the ones that punish. Got it. Moving forward, this view of revenge kind of carries over to Shakespeare's work as well. You know, and he was well aware of this. His works are full of revenge. You know, Hamlet, Othello, Titus Andronicus, which you mentioned yep. in uh, your incest episode. The way you say that <laughs> is like when I had that episode of incest that I was involved when in. When you were in the, had that whole incest episode, we don't talk about it yeah, very much. Sorry. That was, a, that was a tough episode for me. Yeah. I'm glad you worked through it. <laughs> and you're on the other <laughs> side of now. that now. I'm fine. I'm glad, I'm glad you did. But in Shakespeare's work, like I said, a lot of revenge occurred. But of course, revenge was never rewarded in Shakespeare either. It only added to more tragedy. A lot of this could be explained at the time as well when you had Elizabethan Christian morals at that time. And of course, revenge was condemned as an act, mm -hmm. right? You know, the courts and God are supposed to pass judgment. You're not supposed to do it. So his works, again, reflected that. There's an article I'm quoting called Elizabethan Revenge in Hamlet that supports these facts. And it says in the article, it says, it should not be assumed that revenge plays parallel the moral expectations of the Elizabethan audience. Church, state, and the regular morals of people in that age did not accept revenge. Instead, they thought that revenge would simply not under any circumstances be tolerated no matter what the original deed was. It is repugnant on theological grounds since Christian orthodoxy posed its world ordered by divine providence in which revenge is a sin and a blasphemy endangering the soul of the revenger. So his plays reflected that and were warnings against that. Okay. Now flash forward afterward and as time goes by the works sort of sympathize with getting revenge and a really good example of that and the next one I want to talk about is The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm. Did you ever read this? Nope. Came out in 1844. It's probably the most famous revenge story of all time. All right, so it's about this guy named Edmund Dantes, and he's like the first mate on this boat. He's some French guy. Anyway, he's been out to sea. He comes back, and he's all excited because he's going to get married. He's engaged, and he's happy and shit. And, of course, that's very short-lived because for some odd reason, he's accused of treason. He's sort of set up by a bunch of assholes. Anyway, they send him off to this prison in Marseille, Marseille I think. Marseille. Versailles, and he meets this other prisoner, and he becomes friends with him, and over the years, they sort of figure out who set him up and falsely accused him. The old guy also tells Dantes of this treasure that's on this small island called Monte Cristo, so Dantes figures out his escape, and it's actually a really riveting escape. It's like one of the best parts of the book. Anyway, he escapes the prison after like 10 years, and then he goes to the island, he gets the treasure, and then he like plots this big, intricate revenge against the people who fucked him over. So he changes his identity, and he does all this shit, and then he comes back to France and puts his plot into motion. Okay. So the book's huge. Like the book is like a thousand pages. That's or probably something. why I didn't read it. Right. Probably, but it's it a really on my good reading book. list, and I went, Meh. Yeah. And the original free version, because, you know, it's public domain, but the translation, because it's French, and the original English sucks. I have the Penguin edition where it's been retranslated. It's a much better read. Okay. And so I recommend that to our listeners. 
So as he goes through seeking revenge, obviously it's a thrilling book that's on his side and damn it, get payback. But what I notice is that he does manage to exact full vengeance, but it's not all free and clear. Mm-hmm. Due to his actions, there's some collateral damage where a woman commits suicide and takes her son with her, which makes him question what he's doing. He's like, well, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Okay. To make up for it, he ends up helping this young couple because he almost ruins their lives too. So he helps them. He does end up finding peace and sailing away, but it's not without a cost. And so it's interesting that they do show some of the negative effects of revenge in this book, which is probably considered the most popular revenge story of all time. Sure. Fun fact, there was a guy named Pierre Picard, 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 living in France in 1807, who was engaged to marry a rich woman when three jealous friends falsely accused him of being a spy in England. And his path follows a similar one as Dante. Supposedly, this book was based off this real-life account. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, comparing those things before I move forward, just like in the classical Greek and Elizabethan revenge plays, a man's destiny was not supposed to be in his own hands. Justice was the providence of gods and kings, as I've said before. But in regards to the Count of Monte Cristo and in our modern view of society, we live with the assumption that we have a say in what's fair and what's right, and that we can act to exact justice or revenge, as it were. And I'm no historian by any means. No, really? I know, I'm not. I'm really not. But it's worth noting that this book came out about 40-odd years after the French Revolution, you know, a result of which was the decline of the Catholic Church's influence in France. As I mentioned with Shakespeare, his works follow along with the Elizabethan code of you shouldn't be taking revenge. Uh-huh. But these things were kind of lapsed, especially in France. So I think Count of Monte Cristo is the first book, or at least the first book that's as popular as it is, that shows a more modern view of revenge. Even though there's some downsides to it and there's some collateral damage, it's a more positive view of the effects that can happen when someone takes revenge, if that makes sense. You see? So with this brief history of revenge and plays in literature, we're definitely going to come back to these themes. But right now, let's change gears a little bit and talk about cinema and take a look at some of the films that we discussed in my revenge episodes. So I'm going to pick a few films from my past episodes and sort of look at them in a different light. Okay. The first one I want to talk about, and we've talked about this movie a million, billion times, but I love talking about it, is Thriller, a cruel picture slash they call her one eye. Mm-hmm. When cruelty knows no bounds, when evil knows no limits, Revenge strikes with its most frightening power. They called her one eye, then ran for their lives. For those who haven't listened to us talk about this movie a million billion then times, you've never listened to any. You've episodes. never listened this to is any the episodes first time you've, you've ever, ever listened to this. But this picture is about Frigga, who's a mute girl because she was molested as she was a kid. When she grows up, for some reason, she takes a ride from this creepy guy, mm-hmm. who immediately gets her addicted to heroin and then makes her his like prostitute slave. Right. She tries to resist him, and she ends up getting her eye cut out, which is gross, but a good effect in the movie where they actually cut a corpse's eye out. We talked about that a lot. And then, to make things worse, he writes her parents the letters as her, saying she's never going to come back, and they kill themselves. If anybody has a reason to fucking get revenge, (laughs) it's It's Frigga from They Call Her One Eye. And she does, in excessive slow motion that lasts forever. Oh, God. The gunfights forever. We'll come back to that. I just want to point out that movie. The second movie I want to look at is from Vigilante Vets and that's Death Wish from 1974. Mm-hmm. This is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. He begins where all the super cops leave off. <laughs> Call him a mad vigilante. Call him a hero. Either way, he's always on target. Never make a Death Wish. Because a death wish always comes true. So, as you know, it's an American action film, loosely based on the 1972 novel Death Wish. And it's about Charles Bronson, who plays Paul Kersey, a man who becomes a vigilante after his wife is murdered and his daughter is sexually assaulted during a home invasion in New York City. It's the first of the franchise, the Death Wish series. And, of course, it gets wackier as it goes along. Yeah. But They're I'm remaking gonna... it, aren't they? They already did. Oh, boy. Eli Roth remade it. Oh, I'll probably like it then. Yeah, I heard yeah. it was awful. Anyway, so that's the next movie that I'm going to look at a little bit different. And then from Rape Revenge, Day of the Woman slash I Spit on Your Grave. Mm-hmm. What you are about to see did happen. I spit on your grave. <laughs> this woman will soon cut, chop, break, and burn five men beyond recognition. And there isn't a jury in this country that will convict her. I spit on your grave. 
which we've talked about that extensively, but it's an aspiring writer who is repeatedly gang-raped, humiliated, and left for dead by four men, whom she systematically hunts down to seek revenge. Again, you discussed it in Exploitation, and I talked about it in Rape Revenge. And there's like a whole bunch in this series, but this is the main one from 1978 that I'm talking about. And then from Revenge of the Grave, I'm going to look at the movie The Crow from 1994. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, just sometimes, the crow could bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. We've talked about that a lot. That's the action film starring Brandon Lee that is about a guitarist who comes back from the dead to get revenge for his death and his wife's death. Unfortunately, Brandon Lee died making this movie. But anyway, looking at these films, they're all good and commonly cited examples of revenge, you know, not just by us, but in general, if you talk about these types of films. We've seen them a million times. But I would argue that only one of these films is really a pure revenge flick and execution. Mm -hmm. Do you know which one? Yeah. I spit on your grave. Yes. Good Thanks. So, I'm listening. I'm listening. Okay. You're doodling. Slate's like doing tic-tac-toe over here I doodle shit. when I when right. other He's people doing talk. arts and crafts. Mm-hmm. I like whatever that thing is. Thank you. So here's my argument. If you look at all the other films that I just listed, Death Wish, They Call Her One Eye, and The Crow, all of these characters are motivated by revenge. However, look at the circumstances in which they go into action and extract their revenge. In the case of They Call Her One Eye, all types of bad shit happens to Frigga. She's kidnapped, forced into prostitution, has her eye cut out, all types of shit. And all of these actions are justifiable to get fucking revenge. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't actually put her plan into motion until her one friend slash hooker friend is brutally killed by these folks. Right, right. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. Look at Death Wish. Charles Bronson tries to seek justice by going to the police and to no avail. There's no suspects. The cops can't help him. So he takes the law into his own hands by going to the streets and taking out criminals. But if you notice, you know, he doesn't just go to like criminals' houses and kills them in their sleep. He sets himself up to be a target of these criminals. Like they're going to come and rob him. And in every case, you know, he makes himself sort of like a... It's entrapment. (laughs) Oh, yes. It's an entrapment thing. Yeah. He's sort of like bait. And then they come in there and he guns them all down. Right. So hold that thought for a second. Then there's the crow. Eric Draven, who's the main character of the crow, comes back from the dead to take revenge on his and his wife murderers. But they're also part of a gang who continuously terrorize and victimize the citizens of Detroit. Right. So think on that one. And then now I spit on your grave. After 30 minutes of brutal rape and it's terrible, the main character, Jennifer, nurses her wounds and then plans her bloody revenge, which she takes. One by one, she lures the men who raped her into situations where she kills them and then rides off in the sunset in a motorboat content with her revenge. You know, she's almost smiling at the end when she finally kills the guy with the motorboat. So the marked difference that at least I see in this movie than the others is that there are other factors at play than just personal vengeance. There's what you could call elements of self-defense, no matter how dubious they are, and justice for others and not just for the person who's seeking revenge. Mm -hmm. So, and they call her one eye. Frigga goes up against the sex trafficking ring where other girls are victims as well. We see this when, you know, her friend's killed. Uh, The suggestion in this is that these people have and are going to continue to victimize others. So there's an element of justice in her personal revenge. Same with Death Wish, to a degree that he's fighting criminals who go on victimizing others. It is noted that he doesn't actually kill the gang who murdered his wife. You know, Jeff Goldblum doesn't get killed, unfortunately. Too bad. He's one of the people that killed his wife. But the people he does kill are all allegedly active criminals who thought they were about to victimize him. Although it's entrapment, he sets them up. There's a little bit of that element. And then there's the crow. Again, while Brandon Lee's character gets to cheat death, at least temporarily, to seek vengeance, the people he's after are part of a group that's actively terrorizing a city. Even in his altercations, he lets them take a shot at him. But of course, he's invincible, so that doesn't really matter. But if you notice, he's like, oh, yeah, shoot me, and yeah. nothing happens. Yeah, except ironically. Uh, yeah, we don't. Yeah, Sorry. in real life. Yeah. Sorry. You've ruined it. Sorry. Besides the bullet that actually did kill him, mm-hmm. all the fake bullets did not, and he got vengeance. But you can also argue that he helped defend the city against a gang that has been tormenting it. Now, you could argue the rednecks from I Spit in Your Grave have gang-raped or individually raped other women before and would probably do so again. They had no qualms about doing that. But when she started taking her revenge and when they were interacting with her one-on-one, they weren't aggressive or threatening until she started instigating that second time around. So in other words, she was trying to lure them in and be like, hey, we can have sex. It's all good. As a matter of fact, I think a couple of them forgot who she was, or at least one of them did. Yeah, yeah. And it's here that I'm going to make a bold statement and say that after doing four episodes on the different films and film tropes concerning revenge, 
and barely scratching the surface because there's so many of these movies. Clearly, this theme is popular, and I think if you were to ask why, it's because there's a catharsis element of seeing a wrong righted. It's an idea that makes us seek out revenge-themed films and other media. But I'm, again, about to make a bold statement and say that while we love the cathartic idea of revenge, we really don't love the actual act of revenge. And I think I can prove that for you. And on top of that, the truth of exacting revenge is that it's really not cathartic at all. And for an example, I have a case study. Okay. So this guy named Kevin Cartsmith, he's a social psychologist at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. And he made the same claim in a study he published in the May 2008 Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. He conducted a series of experiments at the University of Virginia where he and his colleagues set up a group investment game with students where if everyone cooperated, everyone would benefit equally. However, if someone refused to invest his or her money, that person would disproportionately benefit at the group's expense. You see what I'm saying there? I do. So, Carl Smith planted a secret experimenter in the group and had them convince everyone to invest equally. So, this person was saying, hey, we should work together. But when it came time to put up the money, that plant like said, fuck that, and did it on their own. The free riders, as he called them, earned an extra bit of money while the others earned like half of that. Mm-hmm. Then Carl Smith offered some groups a way to get back at the free rider they could spend some of their earnings to financially punish the group's defector. That's their way of exacting revenge. Right. Virtually everybody was angry over what happened to them, and everyone given the opportunity for revenge took it. He then gave the students a survey to measure their feelings after the experiment. He also asked the groups who'd been allowed to punish the free rider to predict how they'd feel if they hadn't been allowed to punish him. And then he asked the non-punishing groups how they'd feel if they had. In the feeling survey, the punishers reported feeling worse than the non-punishers, but predicted they would have felt even worse had they not been given the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. The non-punishers said they thought they would feel better if they had the opportunity for revenge, even though the survey identified them as the happier group. Mm-hmm. In other words, both groups thought revenge would be sweet, but their reported feelings said otherwise. The results suggest that despite conventional wisdom, people, at least those with westernized notions of revenge, are bad at predicting their emotional states following revenge, Carl Smith says. The reason revenge may stoke anger's flames may lie in our ruminations, he says. When we don't get revenge, we're able to trivialize the event. We tell ourselves that because we didn't act on our vengeful feelings, it wasn't a big deal, so it's easier to forget it and move on. But when we do get revenge, we can no longer trivialize the situation. Instead, we think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Rather than providing closure, it does the opposite. It keeps the wounds open and fresh, he says. So that's interesting to think about. Actual revenge doesn't make us feel any better. Now, let me say that this is also a distinctly Western mindset because this may not be universal, right? But in Western audiences and overall Western culture... Supposedly, this is how we think. But with what we learn in this case study, that revenge doesn't really lead to catharsis, I want to say that, study or not, I think movies at some level know this. I already talked about three films known as revenge thrillers that purposefully blend the line between revenge and justice slash self-defense. There's something more than just personal payback at stake which is a way for us to think we're enjoying a payback story, which, as the study suggests, we love the idea of, but are really seeing something else blended with or disguised as revenge. So that's my argument going forward, and I have some more examples. What do you think so far? I was just going to say that makes sense, because (laughs) whenever you see the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing, and people are like, I want to sit there and I want to watch this person get electrocuted because they killed my so-and-so. At the end, they're like, do you feel better? And they're like, Not really. Right. It's like, they don't want that person to go on living. They want them to pay for their crimes. But then once they pay for their crimes and an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth has been had, they're like, I still feel shitty. Yeah. Yep. And I think the movies know this. Yep. And going forward, I've got some film examples that may look like straight up revenge thrillers, but actually have a little bit more to them. So gives us just a little bit more to talk about than just a straight up thriller. And I'll talk about that. Okay. The next example I have that I think will help prove this is probably the most recognized revenge movie in the last 20 years, mm-hmm. which is Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. You know, I've never seen these. I know you haven't, and I'm quite disappointed in you. Sorry. Sorry, everyone in the world. But these are the movies that were directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring Uma Thurman and David Carradine. And they're really good, so you should watch them. Sorry. Yeah. I have no excuse. You don't. But just as a quick recap, they're about the bride, which is Uma Thurman's character. You find out what her name is in the second movie, but I'm just going to call her the bride here. Who at eight months pregnant gets mowed down and left for dead on her wedding day, along with everybody else at the wedding chapel, by a group of assassins she used to be a part of 
and run by Bill, who was the badass leader of the group, played by David Carradine. And, as it turned out, the father of Thurman's unborn child. She wakes from a coma four years later and goes on a bloody vengeance-filled rampage as she cuts down the assassins one by one until she reaches Bill, the leader. Uh, you can't get more revengey than that. And in the first movie, that's pretty much what you get. It's this non-stop kung fu fighting slash sword fighting action. It's a really thrilling movie. And of course, these films, while under the guise of exploitation, martial arts, revenge flick, reveals itself as something else in that, in my opinion, makes the argument that it ultimately turned out not to be about revenge, but imparts the corrosive effects of seeking revenge. And I'll talk about why. This happens near the beginning, actually. The first fight she's in is with a character played by Vivica Fox. Vivica Fox is one of the people she worked with that took part in the shooting that injured Uma Thurman. She finds her home. She goes, you know, and they get in this big fight and trash the whole house. In the middle of the knife fight, Vivica Fox's daughter, who's, you know, probably a little bit older than what, around the age that Uma Thurman's kid would be, comes home from school. So they basically stop fighting. Of course, the house is trashed. Vivica Fox sends her kid up to her room. They stop fighting from then and go and have coffee and have a talk. And, of course, Vivica Fox is like, we did what we did. We fucked you over, but I'm a different person now, and I have a kid. And Uma Thurman's like, I don't give a shit. Look, I know I fucked you over. I fucked you over bad. I wish to God I hadn't, but I did. You have every right to want to get even. No, 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 no. <sighs> to get even? Even, Stephen? I would have to kill you. Go up to Nikki's room, kill her. Then wait for your husband, the good Dr. Bell, to come home and kill him. That would be even, Bernita. That'd be about square. In the middle of that, Vivica Fox pulls like a hidden gun and tries to shoot her, which forces Uma Thurman to kill her. But what happened is Vivica Fox's daughter saw that. And so there's a line in a movie where Uma Thurman recognizes that what happened and she's like, and she tells the kid, she's like, I'm sorry you had to see this, but your mom had it coming. But then she says, you know, if you still feel raw about it when you grow up, I'll be waiting. So she, you know, the movie recognizes that this could be a bad thing in the future for her. Right. You know, and so I like that it took the time to make that statement in the midst of all the killing, which is a, a peek into the, like the corrosive effects of revenge. But I think this lesson also seems to be taken to heart, too, because the next film is tonally totally different than the first movie. So it's like it's two different flicks, but the tone is different. The first movie, she kills like 80 fucking people. Right. And the second movie, she actually only killed one. And if the first movie is like a kung fu movie, the second one is a Western. OK. What's interesting is like so she goes through all this stuff in the second movie. But then when she finally gets to Bill, as you know, she will. She's surprised when she breaks into his house that her daughter is there. Her daughter comes and runs and gives her a hug and it kind of throws everything out of whack. Right. But what I'm saying is now her motivation is different because she has a daughter to live for and to rescue from Bill because she knows the destructive life that he made her live. And so it becomes more than a revenge film and kind of like a rescue film and a thing of two parents battling over a daughter. And that's what happens. Yes, she does get revenge and she does get the reward for killing Bill. She does end up killing. Spoiler, she kills Bill. So I know I ruined that for you. But that's the name of the movie. Yeah, no, I, I got that part. Yeah. Now. So vengeance is hers, but she gets more out of it. At the end, you see her laughing on the bathroom floor, thrilled that she got her revenge. But I think just thrilled that her daughter is alive, that she, you know, she got something so much more than just cold blood or revenge. Mm -hmm. The movie turns into something different. So you can root for her more than just murdering a bunch of people. Of course, I'd still watch it otherwise. Sure, sure. So let me tie Kill Bill back to the other movies that I mentioned up to now and that other elements tied together such as self-defense, justice, are tied to revenge. Because I realize this is such a trope we see all the time in movies if you think about it. As I was writing this, I was thinking about that. How many times have you seen that dude who, like that cop in the movies who's like fighting the bad guy and then finally gets the leg up on him and he's got a gun on the unarmed bad guy and he's about to just fucking kill him because, you know, he murdered his wife or his dog or whatever. And his partner's like, don't do it, man. He ain't worth it, man. Right, he ain't yeah. worth it, man. And he's like, you know what? You're not worth it. And then they turn around to leave. And then the bad guy secretly has a weapon. Right, sure. He pulls it. And then they turn around and kill him. It becomes self-defense and, of course, justice. But it's a secret way to kind of get like revenge. Device, but right. it keeps that person elevated as a hero. Right. So that the audience doesn't turn on them. Being right. like, oh, they responded to their most like carnal. Right. They rose above it. But then they secretly still were able to get their revenge. Right. But in a more noble manner. Yeah. That's tied to self-defense. Super manipulative. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's just, I never pondered that deeply until I started looking at this. But that's exactly what it is. It's a better way of getting revenge to elevate it higher than just revenge. Yeah. 
So let me flip this back around. Okay. So up to this point, I've talked about movies that are considered revenge movies, but when you dig deeper, there's an extra element that make them rise above just your standard revenge fare. Sure. Right now, I want to flip this around and talk about some films that dare to delve into similar themes as the Greek tragedies of yore and show the corrosive and destructive nature of revenge. So that there is no other element. These are the ones that show the bad side of revenge, which you don't see as much, right. but they're there. And so those are the ones that I want to talk about. Now, note, there's probably more than I put in this episode because I have only but so much time, but these ones stood out. And so I want to talk with you about them. First one I want to talk about is In the Bedroom from 2001. Did you ever see this movie? I did. Was that a Sissy Spacek mm-hmm. and Marisa to May. Mm-hmm. Nick Stahl. Nick Stahl. Tom yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's about this family and their only son, Frank, who comes home from his freshman year of college for summer vacation. He starts dating soon-to-be-divorced mother, Natalie, who's played by Marissa Tomei. She's older. She is older. She's an older woman, and she's a single mom. But... Natalie's husband shows up, and spoiler, he ends up killing the kid in an altercation. He gets arrested, but makes bail, and I guess because of some sort of circumstantial evidence yeah, or something. he got off. Somehow. He got off, yeah. or at least was only going to face manslaughter charges, so at the most, a couple of years in jail. But he's still on bail, walking around town. So, spoiler for the ending, Nick Stahl's father in the movie captures the abusive husband with the help of a friend, and they end up killing him. Yeah. And then, I guess they bury him or whatever, but then Nick Stahl's father goes home, but he doesn't really feel like there's any resolution. He's not comforted in the fact that he was able to get rid of this guy. It didn't really bring him peace. No. I I think, I mean, I only saw it one time, and it was a big Oscar nominee, but I don't think it really won anything Mm -hmm. that year. But I think, I remember Sissy Spacek smoked like a million cigarettes in the movie. And at the end, it was just kind of like, they were kind of thinking like, we're supposed to feel this wave of like relief that's coming over us and no one feels this way no. at all. Like they were just like, okay, I guess that's done. Now our son's still dead. And it ends pretty much just like that. And yeah. I think the weight of what he did is sinking in on the father and there's no catharsis right. at all. And you're right, this movie was, first of all, it was successful financially, but it also was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay at the 2002 Academy Awards. Yeah. It didn't win any, it didn't win but, anything, but it yeah. got a lot of acclaim at the time. But it's a great example and a bold one on the actual act of revenge and it not changing anything. Yeah. It's not a flattering a look on revenge. fine film. It is a great film, though. The next movie I want to talk about is also a fine film, and that is Blue Ruin from 2013. And you love that movie I think as much as I do. Um, I like it a lot. I think you really love the movie, and I think I thought that it was very good. Okay. It wasn't my favorite movie. It's not all certainly time, not but... my favorite movie, but I liked it a lot. Well, let me talk about it. Uh, and I'm just I just pulled this from IMDb, but sure. it's a mysterious outsider's quiet life is turned upside down when he returns to his childhood home to carry out an act of vengeance. He's a, kind of a shitty assassin, so he he number one, he kills the wrong person, and then he kind of gets the family of that person after his family so right. now they're threatening his sister and i forgot if she had a kid or not did she have a kid i don't remember but definitely after his sister so now he sort of opened up that cycle of revenge and he has to now kill all of them basically to save his sister so it just starts this bad cycle it's an entertaining movie but i like that it's sort of like in the bedroom that revenge didn't solve anything you know yeah. it wasn't glamorized so moving on, I got a couple more examples. I'm going to switch gears again. And then after that, I'm going to try to tie this whole fucking thing together. Okay. <laughs> so good All right. luck. We'll see. So moving on, the next subject I'm going to tackle is what I call revenge as a character trait. In other words, the quest for revenge and their means of extracting revenge is sort of the defining characteristic or is at least a part of a characteristic of this sure. person. The movie itself isn't a revenge thriller or about revenge, but this character is either seeking vengeance or has. And it's like obsessed with and, it. And it's a defining moment for that character or defining characteristic sure. and for good or ill. Yep. So for this section, I had several examples. One was going to be Michael Corleone from the Godfather series. When he's a young man, he actually gets revenge against this really old man who murdered his family when he was a kid. And I was going to talk about that. And then I was going to talk about Benicio Del Toro in the movie Sicario, where he kills his drug lord. First, he kills his whole family in front of the drug lord. You know, they're innocent people, but he kills them to get revenge. And I was going to talk about the dark sides of those two cases of revenge. But honestly, the the third one I was going to talk about kind of sums it up anyway. And really, it's probably the only one you really want to hear anyhow. And that would be, of course, Inigo Montoya, played by Mandy Patinkin in the beloved classic The Prince's Bride. I wrote this down. I was going to be <laughs> mad if you didn't I had to talk up. about this. My name is... What is it again? Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Of course. Yeah. You know, I don't really need to describe this movie. Yeah, everyone, everyone in the world. Everybody knows, knows this, so I don't need to talk about it. And people love this movie. I like it. I love it. A lot of movie. people love this movie. Yeah, I great. saw it actually in the theater when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. And it was like, is it 87? 
Yeah, that's when it came out. We, and I think it was PG-13, and it was a big deal for me to see a PG-13-rated really? movie. And I love this movie. I mean, yeah. it's a great movie. Yeah. I like it a lot. And his character is very, very memorable. But for those of you who haven't seen the movie... Go, that's no one? That's no one, yeah. But anyway, brief synopsis. So it's about a farmhand named Wesley, accompanied by his companions along the way. They, they go to rescue his true love, which is Princess Buttercup, from a guy named Prince Humperdinck. Humperdinck, so, yeah. And that's all you need to know. Inihio Montoya is a guy who has planned his whole life around getting revenge against the Six-Fingered Man, telling everybody he meets that he's seeking revenge and that he even knows what he's going to say when he finally arrives on that day where he can avenge his father's death, which is, what is it again? Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He says that over and over. Everybody knows that. Eventually, he does indeed find the man with the six fingers named Tyrone Rugen, who's played by Christopher Guest using the same questionable British accent he used in Spinal Tap. I love Christopher Guest. Yeah, I know. He's wonderful. I went on a date with a guy one time that reminded me so much of Christopher Guest from Waiting for Guffman. This is a really nice guy. But I was just like, I can never see you again. <laughs> like, all I can think of when I look at you wow. is quirky St. Clair. Wow. Yeah. Did he show you his um, dinner with Andre action figure? <laughs> he didn't. He no, didn't. Although, if he had done that, he might have gotten points. But, uh, yeah, I was like, I can never see you again. I'm sorry. I wish I was a fly on the wall. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow, that's amazing. Gay problems. <laughs> I can't not see you on a date with quirky St. Clair. It was now. weird. It was weird. Yeah. Such a nice guy. And yeah. I was just like, I'm sorry. It's amazing Sorry. the stories I get mm -hmm. from you in these podcasts. Yep. That's amazing. All right. So anyway, moving on. But we're going to come back to that. Probably not what we're recording. Uh, let's never bring it up again. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Inyo, Inigo, I can't say his fucking name, confronts Quirky. And of course, he gets stabbed <laughs> by a thrown dagger. So he thinks that he's not going to get revenge and that he failed his father. But then he finds some inner strength and he starts spouting his memorized line over and over, emerging victorious. But here's the thing. You never get to see what becomes of him in the long run because the movie ends not too far after that. He survives. He kills the bad guy. He's wounded, but he makes it the end. But you never see the outcome with Inyo Montoya afterwards, <laughs> right? Point is, he's been planning for this his whole life. Chances are it wasn't satisfying in the long run. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, you know, it was a duel and there was some self-defense. And of course, there was a bit of justice, of course, and Rugen is a dick. But this man's whole life was driven on revenge. And I think based on our discussion today, I'm just saying his victory will fade and he just might end up depressed afterward. He might. But this is a fairy tale. And at the end right. of a fairy tale, everyone lives happily ever after. So I, I realize Except that under the giant died. But yeah. like one minute after that movie I know was filmed. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to bring that up that that is a person whose sole purpose is revenge. Mm -hmm. But I mean, because it's a fairy tale, you look at it in a positive light. And say, sure. All right. That guy finally accomplished the thing he wanted to accomplish. But if we're going to play by real rules, then he's probably he's depressed. He's got some demons. He's got later. some demons. He's going to have some bad dreams. Yeah. yeah. So there, now that I've ruined The Princess Bride for you, I think my work's done here. Okay. All right. Let me see if I can wrap this whole thing Good luck. Up. You have to wrap up this entire podcast. So I don't want to just um, <laughs> set anybody's uh, expectations high, but you have to wrap up this entire podcast with so this. So I think what's probably going to happen is kind of like how Lost ended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Some okay, questions will fair. be answered, uh -huh. but ultimately be unsatisfied. Okay, right? fair. Just prepare Tot yourself for it now. Totes fair. We'll see how it goes, so bear with me. So, going back to the beginning, maybe the Greek tragedies did have it right, or at least accurate, and that revenge isn't the place for the individual, and though maybe not for God or the gods to decide, but something delegated elsewhere, like maybe the justice system? I don't know. But as it's proven, blood on blood only begets more blood. Maybe. Yet we still love the thought of revenge against those that have wronged us, right? Mm -hmm. Our entertainment proves that we love that idea, considering how many movies have a theme about revenge, considering that I've dedicated now five hours to talking about it in this podcast. Yet if the experiment I discuss is to be believed, then not only does exacting revenge not heal our wounds, but invites retribution back on us. Right, right. The thing is, a lot of movies we see with a revenge theme seem to have that insight, since many don't exhibit cut-and-dry revenge and will try to show other reasons, no matter how subtle, to tie into that revenge. Like, the popular ones, for instance, like Death Wish, was 
was hugely popular, while fascist at heart, are also statements to the failures of our legal system, and it caters to the fantasy of bringing criminals to a swift and brutal justice. Again, Deathwish tries to hedge its bets by having Kesey be open to attacks who he basically seen as defending himself rather than just sneaking up on criminals and shooting them in the back of their head, right? right? Yeah. You know, he's just not assassinating people. He's sort of, I mean, not really giving them a fair fight, but he puts himself in a situation where he, quote-unquote, defends himself. He's baiting them. Yes. Yeah. Deathwish, although mostly failing, is trying to be about justice as is most of the vigilante films. Rape revenge movies, for the most part, try to at least point out that their rapists will more than likely repeat that behavior, victimizing more young women unless something is done. So I think what I'm saying is that it's a classic bait and switch. Mm-hmm. You know, the movies that motivate us with revenge give us something more to root for than just payback. And the ones that don't are always shown as cautionary tales. I mean, I Spit on Your Grave is a dubious example because that one, she just seeks bloody revenge and gets away. And I feel like she'd be scarred forever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, sure. But that's exploitation. And there's so many problematic things with that movie that it's its own entity. But a lot of these movies that are revenge, there's always an element of altruism or something more than just brutal payback and of course the movies that do represent brutal payback show their characters you know like in the bedroom or even something like blue ruin things are in some ways worse off than they were before right sure so these are cautionary tales yet we still fucking love revenge Mm -hmm. you know there's so many movies that have that as a as a piece to it or at least a motivator that it'll never go out of fashion matter of fact uh rape revenge there's a movie called Revenge that just came out that's a throwback to the rape revenge subgenre. So these movies are coming out all the time. Yeah, sure. But I love if, revenge movies. I mean, I do yeah. too. But what I think, and my point here is, in a nutshell, I think I can, I'll just wrap this up and say, we go to the movies for revenge, but it's the justice that makes us happy. Okay, makes sense. Thanks, everyone. But, but let's throw a couple of thanks out real quick before we go. Mm-hmm. So I always say thanks to John who made our theme song. I didn't say it so far this season, but thanks. It's been a staple in yeah, our episode. We, so we didn't John. have a podcast till we had the song. Yeah. Then we had to f- then we were like, oh shit, now we have to make a podcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So thanks again for that song. And I just want to do a quick anecdote for that. So when we were coming up with the podcast and I asked him to do the song for me, he was like, Well, what do you want? And I was like, Well, let me see. I want this to sound like every exploitation song ever. You know, what's the mm-hmm. surf rock piece that's like Russ Meyer sounding and then some 70 cent shit. Like I gave him the worst explanation ever. And he's like, hold my beer and made our theme song. Yep. So he did great. Great job. Agreed. I listened to it one time and I was like, oh, no comments. That's, right. that's our theme song. Yeah. So thanks again, John. And for all the listeners out there, there's been a few of you that have constantly kept up with us and we hope that you will continue to talk to us and send us your film, you know, ideas or questions or whatever corrections that you may have picked up or additions, uh, even future episodes episode ideas like i said we don't know where we're going in the future but if we ever pick this up again one of your episodes that you suggest or one of your topics you suggest maybe a future episode yeah absolutely so what do you got slate that's it i'm done all right well thanks for tuning in thanks for listening all this five seasons we've really appreciated it and, and your feedback you guys have been awesome we thank you so much thanks everyone all right peace out bye Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources. So here's my question. Yes. In the movie Jaws the Revenge, <laughs> who gets revenge here? Jaws the Revenge. This time, it's personal. All right, first of all, let me just say this Mm -hmm. before I answer this. How dare you make Jaws the Revenge an actual (laughs) philosophical conversation? Because here's the question. When you think about Jaws the Revenge, rough plot, Lorraine Gary, for some reason, is the heroine of this movie. All of her family members have been killed. Mm -hmm. She goes to Jamaica. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Sure, Jamaica. And Jaws follows her there and then starts eating everyone. So she does kill the shark at the end, so she's getting revenge on on Jaws. But I don't think that's right, because she goes down there to get away from Jaws. He's the one that follows her. I think Jaws is getting revenge on the fact that all the members of her family kept killing all of Jaws's descendants. Yeah, that's, this time is personal. It's the sharks. It's personal for the shark. I thought you knew that going into this. This time, it's personal. 
I, and this is why I say how dare you because you're making me think about this movie. No. But now that we're there, Jaws of Revenge, this time it's personal, is the shark. It's, it's, it's personal for the shark, which is a dumb. The movie's Disagree. already dumb. Disagree. I think it's this time it's personal. So the shark, Mm-mm. you know, the shark just feeds anywhere else, but he follows her and he's after her. The sh- it's personal for the shark. The sh- you're absolutely right. The shark is trying to get revenge. This time it's personal. But wait a minute. Because I feel like the way that it's marketed, the poster is of Lorraine Gary, for some reason, who they decided is going to be the perfect heroine of this movie, is standing on the ship, and it's like she's going after the shark that killed everyone in her family. I feel like it's marketed like she's getting revenge on the shark. I, I disagree. I think that the shark is trying to get revenge for her because of what you originally said, which was that her family killed everybody. So the shark is trying to just wipe out her whole bloodline because... Because her family killed its family. See, it's the bloody cycle of revenge that just doesn't stop, right? Now it's personal. Well, here's the question. So she killed Jaws at the very, very end. It right. was clunky. I don't know why he roars like a lion. Oh, but... didn't she harpoon him at the front of the boat? Yeah. And yeah. he went, Aah! a shark, when you kill it, does not roar like a lion. But I, whatever, I, whatever. No, I agree with that. No, that it doesn't. I still stand by this and say that if the shark is getting revenge because he's following down to fucking Jamaica. He's after her. He didn't just randomly show up. He's payback, motherfucker. He's Here's after what I'm going to say. What? I think that the line, this time it's personal, had to do with the shark. Yes. I'm saying that I think they thought that the revenge was her killing him at the end and closing out this whole cycle. She's the only one left over. She's got to kill him. I don't know why Mario Van Peebles is in this movie. Whatever <laughs> does make a difference. Yeah. But I think that you're right. This time it's personal had to do with the shark. Yes. But I think the revenge part was supposed to have to do with Lorraine Gary. I think she was the revenge part. I mean, maybe, maybe she was trying, but it's a different shark. It ain't that shark's fault. The shark knows that basically in the past three other movies that members of Lorraine Gary's family are responsible for right, this. Right, so it's, it wants revenge. I think that when they marketed <laughs> this, they thought that Lorraine Gary was getting revenge. Maybe, but that's just another failure on top of this whole movie. It was a fucking failure. And the shark followed her down to get fucking payback. Take it up with the marketing team. They probably got the movie and they were like, oh, she's getting revenge. But it meant for the shark to get revenge because the shark follows her down, which number one, no sharks ever do that. But two, all the other sharks were just doing what sharks do. So when they killed everybody in the other movies, it's not personal. But this time it's personal. This time it was it's personal, personal because, because the shark somehow fucking got from Massachusetts <laughs> to, down to, to Jamaica or right, whatever yeah. and got stabbed by a boat. So if we do season six, can you do an episode called Shark Revenge? <laughs> I really wanted to close this out, but you know what? I will probably do a shark revenge or some sort Good, of you promise re- revenge of the critters. Yeah. I'm just going to call it this time it's personal and it'll be about <laughs> every animal that got revenge. Perfect. That's and, all I ask. And whether or not it opened up a cycle of revenge against other animals and people. And whether at the end, right before Jaws, the revenge got stabbed in the face with a ship mast. <laughs> did he feel bad? Was he like, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have come all the way down. I here. think he, reg- I mean, I think he had some regret. I yeah. think he had a little bit of remorse. There. He was like, he was you like, know, I'm, the water's too warm here. He's like, I um, ate that little boy in the banana boat and that felt good. But now all of a sudden I'm yeah. kind of like, maybe I shouldn't try to avenge all of yeah. my other shark ancestors. I, I agree. So I think he had some regret. Speaking of which, you know, Michael Caine was asked if he had any regret for being in Jaws of Revenge. Mm-hmm. He d- he didn't get to accept his Oscar. No, but his answer is great. Mm-hmm. He was like, I did not see the movie, but I saw the house it built and mm-hmm. it's lovely. Yeah, they so, paid him a lot of money for they that. paid him a lot yeah. of money for that. So, yeah. So this Michael time, Caine's doing fine. Everyone. So it wasn't personal for yeah. Michael Caine. <laughs> this Don't time worry about it was Michael business. Caine. He's yeah, totally fine. He was fucking fine with making the money he made off of Jaws of Revenge. Yeah. But again, that's a good point. Jaws was seeking revenge. Maybe she was seeking revenge. I like that you were like, that's a good point. And that's now a you're good trying point. to figure I'm, I'm, out. I'm going to tie that this back is, into this fucking please, episode. Please, go ahead. Please but try. That's a, but that's a movie you that You just shows... said, Slate, you made a good point about Jaws the Revenge. Go ahead. <laughs> First of all, it's all your fault to bring it up. So you know what? I'm going to make a point out of it. Please do. So 
Jaws of Revenge shows of the evil cycle of revenge. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of sharks died. Her mm-hmm. whole family died. Michael Caine had to be in a shitty movie. It's the slippery slope of revenge we don't see that's not usually marketed to us, you know? Now, you could argue mm-hmm. that she was getting revenge, but she also helped prevent this Jaws from eating more people. So maybe there was a hint of altruism and a bit of protecting others that is a little bit beyond what she would be getting for revenge. Jaws the Revenge almost ate her granddaughter. So there's a protection piece, which again, these other movies that we call revenge movies that we enjoy have a sliver of something more. Right, right. That's been my argument that I don't know if I did a good job explaining, but there's always been something a little bit more as part of it. So that's a bit of protection slash justice you know, a little bit of altruism there. So there's something beyond just getting my greedy revenge. Okay. I can buy that. I think so, I can buy that. So I think that's where I'm going to leave this with Jaws the Revenge and say You're that, mm-hmm. honestly, the revenge that we love isn't revenge at all. And the next revenge movie we see, this time it'll be personal. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck I'm saying? This time it's personal. Uh, all right. So that's that's it. Hi, thanks for calling me back. I just listened to the episode and you said you were going to record something that wraps this whole thing up and I just listened to it and there's nothing that wraps this whole thing up. No, I, I realized that. Yeah, I figured you'd catch that. So I, I didn't do that because I'm going to try to talk you into doing a sixth season so I don't have to wrap it up. I understand what you're saying and I do feel like that we could probably squeeze out one more season, but I feel strongly that this book is the way to go. And I think that we should do the book. No, I totally agree with the book. Fuck yeah, we can do, you know, like pop a book or scratch and sniff, whatever, man. I'm, I'm down with that. We can do the book. I like the idea of a pop-up book. I actually do like the idea of a pop-up <laughs> That'd be the shit, like a pop-up, like, thriller they call her one eye or something. Yeah, and like a big dick sticks out. Yeah, exactly. I like that. I like that too. Okay, so are you saying that we do the book for me, we do the sixth season for you, and yeah. then everyone's happy? Yeah, everybody's happy. And the audience oh. is happy. I'm, I'm happy. You might be happy. I don't care if you're happy, but I'll be happy. So that'd be good. If you'll give me the book, then I will think about doing... Sounds like yes. That sounds like yes to me. Fuck, 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 fuck. Sounds like yes. Um, it's consent. Okay. God, that's consent. I got it on tape. I'll think about it. All right. I'll think about it. All right, that's good. I'll take that. All right, 2019. It's on. Good job. Thanks. Thanks for picking Are up. Are you recording this? No. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. I am recording this. I kind of have a feeling. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't want you to renege on it. So there you go. Well, at least you've got the ending to your episode now. Yep. 2019. Slum season six. And Maybe. a book. Maybe. Just tell them <laughs> at the end of the episode not to unsubscribe. Oh, yeah. Don't unsubscribe, everyone. Um, please stay. You don't have to tell me. Oh. <laughs> Tell them at the end of your episode when you finally finish it. Ah, oh, shit. I was trying to kill two birds with one stone here. But hey, everybody, don't unsubscribe. Stay with us. And, um... Who are you talking to? <laughs> shit. All right. Either way. All right. Oh, God. I'll All right. think about it. Thanks, Slate. I, you, you're great. Mm-hmm. Stop recording now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>